Hi, and welcome to Pimped, OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in obstetrics and gynecology. I'm Dr. Jennifer Dory, an OBGYN resident at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia and founder of Pimped, a medical flashcard app. My particular interests are in academic OBGYN and medical student education. All right, welcome back to Pimped. Today we're talking about, before your first, hysterectomy. Now this, just like our laparoscopic um, talk last time, is kind of a broad topic in that there are a lot of different ways to do a hysterectomy. The most common approaches are going to be abdominal, meaning an open incision, an X-lap, with either a midline vertical or a fan and steel incision. Laparoscopic is going to be the next most common in most institutions, and this can either be laparoscopic straight stick or robot Um, assisted laparoscopic or a laparoscopic assisted vaginal hysterectomy, all different approaches, but all involving laparoscopic approaches. And then there are vaginal hysterectomies, meaning there are no abdominal incisions at all, and it all comes out through the vagina. Or like we said, there are combinations, or you can attempt to do it one way and end up actually doing it another. So before you go into hysterectomy, it's good to at least know the basic steps of each, um, the basic risks and benefits, and the different reasons we would choose one way or another. So let's talk about um, first the indications for doing a hysterectomy. Most common reasons for hysterectomies in younger women are going to be bleeding issues. So abnormal uterine bleeding is a pretty common indication. Um, People who either have excessive bleeding with their menses or constant bleeding, this can be due to fibroids, polyps, um, or endometrial hyperplasia, which is um, can be a precursor to endometrial cancer. Uh, lots of different anatomic reasons to have excessive bleeding. Um, these people can sometimes be offered a um, ablation, meaning a burning of the endometrial lining. Some people don't want that, or they just want definitive treatment, and so they just want the uterus out. So they end up with a hysterectomy. Uh, Other common reasons are prolapse. So uh, after a bunch of vaginal deliveries or just with age and time, the uterus and the cervix can prolapse down lower into the vagina and sometimes even out of the vagina. Um, This can cause a lot of difficulty for women, not only with discomfort and pelvic pain and pressure, but also can cause um, voiding issues, issues with bowel movements, issues with sex, a lot of different things and all good reasons to have a hysterectomy um, if that is the most appropriate therapy for you. Um, Then obviously, if you're on the oncology service, there's a lot of different cancers for which we'll take out the uterus. So ovarian cancer, fallopian tube cancer, peritoneal cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer, if it's an early stage, um, all reasons we would recommend doing a hysterectomy, uh, just because it's also closely connected and things can spread through those open tubes down there. Um, So first off, obviously, why are you doing it? Read a little bit about the patient if you have access through the electronic medical record. If not, just read a little bit in particular about the procedure. See if you can't. Once again, find some good YouTube videos. Check out the um, Pimped YouTube channel, which I'm trying to collect a lot of really good videos for you guys that walk you through these basic procedures in a up-to-date, factual way. 
Um, all right. So the some of the first decisions you have to make when you're going to do a hysterectomy are, uh, are you taking or leaving the tubes and ovaries? These are two important questions that typically have already been addressed in the office with the patient um, in a joint decision-making manner. So tubes. What, what benefit do the tubes provide, really? So they provide a woman with fertility. They allow the option for an egg to travel down them and actually get pregnant. So once somebody's been through menopause or is done childbearing and, say, has had a tubal ligation or has had some other variety of um, sterilization, you know, a vasectomy, or they've had a lark um, and know that they're done, done, done childbearing, which pretty much everybody having a hysterectomy needs to be done, not pretty much everyone, um, you don't really need the tubes anymore. So what are the risks of taking out the tubes? And this is where the question really comes in. So if the risk of taking out the tubes is significant, that might be the really only reason to leave them. The times that there might be risk involved in taking out the tubes is if you're going to be doing this procedure vaginally. So sometimes it's just uh, logistically difficult to get to the tubes in a manner that doesn't require pulling or put a patient at risk for bleeding that you wouldn't be able to control vaginally um, by taking out the whole tube. So sometimes people will just take out as much of the tube as they can get. The other, the risk of leaving the tube, the other thing to know is that the tube, the fallopian tube can actually be um, the source for a lot of primary, what we used to think of as primary ovarian epithelial cancers. So we now know in the last several years that there are these things called stick lesions, these primary tubal lesions that can then grow out. And we used to be classifying these things as epithelial ovarian cancers. We're now developing some stains and things that are going to allow us to differentiate from a primary fallopian tube cancer versus a um, ovarian cancer. But uh, for now, what we know is that removing the tubes will decrease the risk of ovarian cancer in the future. So if people aren't going to have a uterus, if we can, we want to take out those tubes to decrease the risk of ovarian cancer. Again, if it's not going to add risk to their procedure. Now the ovaries. This is where it gets a little bit more murky. So what benefit do the ovaries provide? The ovaries provide the estrogen, which is incredibly important for women's health overall. Obviously, it keeps you from going into menopause um, and provides a lot of personal um, life benefits in that you're not having hot flashes. Um, people, when they go through menopause, are going to get vaginal dryness. They're going to get some mood swings with the hormonal swings. They're going to have night sweats um, that are associated with their hot, you know, their hot flashes at night. They feel like night sweats. So literally, some people will stay up all night sweating. They can't get comfortable. Um, and surgically induced menopause, because it's sudden and not a kind of a gradual step, step down of the normal ovary slowing down, um, can be worse for some people. And so surgical menopause is not something we typically take lightly. So they also have a lot of cardiovascular and bone benefits. Um, so these are, it's your, the estrogen is good for your cardiovascular health, and it's also good for preventing osteoporosis and osteopenia. Um, so people who lose their ovaries at a young age, we often have to go through different routes to try to mitigate those um, issues that we've caused. So people will end up on bisphosphonates for their bones earlier, taking calcium and vitamin D, um, and potentially having to watch their cholesterol more closely for their cardiovascular health um, as they go forward. So what about post-menopausal? Do the ovaries still have a benefit after menopause? And the question is, I mean, the answer is we think so. So there's been some research to show that the ovaries, even after symptomatic menopause, are still actually providing a little bit of benefit for the bones and the cardiovascular system. Um, and so typically, if the woman is having her uterus out for a completely benign condition um, and does not have any risk factors for developing ovarian disease. Um, 
we recommend leaving the ovaries in unless they're 65 or older. And this is a, it's not a strong recommendation. So somewhere after 54, 55, it can be reasonable to just take out the ovaries um, after a thorough discussion with the patient and sort of a joint decision-making process, as long as it's informed consent. If the patient's like, look, even a small risk of having any additional procedure in the future is not worth it to me. I would rather have to be concerned about a little bit of hormone replacement or to take a little bit of risk in terms of osteoporosis, osteopenia, and cardiovascular disease um, just to make sure I never have to undergo surgery again. Then that might be reasonable for that patient. Um, it's one of those things where we don't have we don't have super strong evidence that 65 is the holy grail of when you can start taking them out for no good reason. Um, but it's sort of a, a rough guideline that we use, and that will be the guideline that they use on your shelf. Um, so 65 and older, take out those ovaries. Less than that, we typically don't recommend it unless they have risk factors. Um, if it's going to be a laparoscopic case, be sure to listen to the podcast on, um, your first laparoscopic surgery to talk more about the approach, how you get into the abdomen, the manipulator, your role in it and all of that. Um, but we're going to kind of skip over the laparoscopic stuff since we already touched on it in a different podcast. And let's just talk about the important steps of a hysterectomy, regardless of approach and the common questions that you are going to be asked during this. So from... Up top. And by up top, I mean entering through the abdomen. So laparoscopic or abdominal approach. A lot of providers are going to start by incising and cutting the round ligament. Um, the round ligament is a great source of questions and stress for medical students. This is not something you ever cover in first or second year of medical school, but attendings love, 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 love to ask you this. So what artery runs inside the round ligament? What artery runs inside the round ligament? Now, it's not something that supplies a lot of blood. Um, it's not something that will bleed heavily or super crucial for anatomy. It's just an eponym that they love you to know. And it's Samson's. So it's the artery of Samson or Samson's artery um, runs inside the round ligament. And for whatever reason, they love to ask you this. So know that. If they ask you about the round ligament, the answer is probably Samson. Um, all right, so that's the first thing. And a lot of hysterectomies, depending on the provider and their approach, are going to start with, if they start from up top, if you start from the abdomen, they're going to start by cutting that round ligament and then working their way backwards to the tubes and ovaries. Um, other providers will start at the tubes and ovaries, uh, depending on sort of what the pathology is and what the reason is you're doing it. So let's talk about that ovary and that um, what structure conceals the blood flow to the ovary. And this is something that probably, again, in your second year, your first and second year anatomy, you talked about, and it had a different name. And so the name you used to know it by was the suspensory ligament of the ovary. That conceals the um, ovarian artery from the aorta down to the ovary. We call it, in clinical practice, the IP ligament, the pelvic ligament. So this is important because it'll actually retract back up towards the aorta. So it goes lateral to the sidewalls and then down behind the retroperitoneum and then back up towards the aorta. So if this thing starts bleeding, if it is not really tied off or burned or whatever before it is cut, it can hemorrhage. And that can be a really good concealed hemorrhage in that retroperitoneum, meaning we don't see it right away. We can't see the blood welling up in the pelvis. It builds up behind that uh, posterior peritoneum and we don't see it until the patient starts getting hypotensive. So you'll see us 
we burn this thing or we cut and we tie and we watch and we make sure that it is not bleeding because that is a direct blood supply from your aorta and it can bleed bad. Um, All right, the next thing we worry about a lot are what are the four levels at which the ureter can be injured during a hysterectomy or that is the four places it is most commonly injured during a hysterectomy. Could really be injured anywhere depending on what you're doing. But the we'll start up top, we'll start um, cranially and we'll move our way caudally. So first one is at the pelvic brim. Um, as it goes over the pelvic brim and starts diving from a lateral down towards a more medial location. The second is just medial to that infundibulopelvic ligament. So the ureter is sweeping medially at this point, posteriorly and medially, um, and runs just medial to that infundibulopelvic ligament. And this is, again, assuming normal anatomy. There are normal anatomic variants. So the risk is that it could be very close to that IP ligament. It could be very close to what I just said we needed to burn the heck out of to make sure it doesn't bleed. So this is a problem because lateral spread of heat can cause a delayed ureter injury. Um, and this is one of the a feared complication of a hysterectomy is a, a delayed thermal injury to a uh, bowel or bladder or um, ureter. And it can be very close to the IP ligament. And for this reason, some people will enter through the round ligament and come back once they've identified that ureter and made it move more medially and get it got it further away from the IP before that they burn the IP ligament. Um, but either way, you're probably going to try and look and locate that ureter before you burn that IP ligament to try to avoid this complication. Um, it's a really great time to see the ureter too. It's beautiful. It peristalsis. It has all these wispy little blood vessels on it. Um, the first time you think you see it, you're going to smile and nod and be like, oh yeah, yeah. And the second and third time you really see it peristalsis, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, especially in a laparoscopic case, cause you're never going to get to see it so clearly. All right. So the four levels at which we, our ureter is commonly injured. We said one pelvic brim, two, just medial to that IP ligament when we're transecting that IP ligament. Three is where it passes under the uterine artery. So water under the bridge. We always say this, the water runs under the bridge, which is the ureter passes under those under that um, uterine artery there. And so right where the water passes under the bridge, if you are burning your uterine artery there, again, you can have that thermal spread or you can have a direct injury or you could have the thermal spread of the heat cautery from um, trying to achieve hemostasis at the uterine artery and you can injure that ureter there. And the fourth one is just lateral to your vaginal cuff closure um, because your vaginal cuff is going to be, your ureter is going to squeeze just lateral to that vaginal cuff as it comes up and implants into the dome of the bladder. Uh, And so if you go too lateral when uh, trying to close that vaginal cuff, you can actually grab the ureter and entrap it in the um, cuff suture itself. So again, the four places you injure the ureter, one is at the pelvic brim, Two, just medial to that IP ligament. Three, as it passes under the uterine artery, the artery, the water under the bridge. And four, just lateral to that vaginal cuff closure. All right, so step four is um, where we are going to ligate and transect the uterine arteries. When this happens, we're going to do one side and then switch over into the other side. Um, once we have uh, burned, we've cauterized, we've ligated, whatever we've done uh, to these arteries, the uterus should start to blanch. It should t- stop being that beautiful pink color that it normally is, and it should turn a little ghostly white. And that means that you've got good source control of the blood. Um, and then once we have controlled all the blood supply to it, we got to figure out how we're going to take it out. And this will change depending on, again, your approach. Um, so 
The step in which you create a hole in the vagina to separate the uterus and the cervix from the vagina is called a colpotomy, um, creating a hole in that uh, posterior or in the um, dist distal vagina. And so this uh, colpotomy can be made several different ways. If you're doing an open hysterectomy, it will often be done with um, scissors, uh, just cutting directly into it with a clamp on the vagina and then sewing it shut. Uh, if you're doing it laparoscopically, it's often going to be done with um, cautery and you're going to you know, burn the edges while you're doing it and then sew them back together. Uh, if you're doing it vaginally, it can be done either with scissors or with a bovie. Um, people have different ways of doing it depending on their approach. Um, so once you've got the uterus disconnected, the uterus and cervix disconnected, um, you just have to close up the hole you made in the vagina and actually make a vaginal cuff. Um, the risk of this step, the thing to know about the closure of the vaginal cuff is that you can have what's called a vaginal cuff dehiscence, meaning an opening of that cuff. Um, the Major concern with that is what's behind the cuff, your bowel. So women will come into the emergency room following a vaginal cuff dehiscence with small bowel hanging out of their vagina. It is a terrifying experience for them and for anybody involved in their care because if that bowel is strangulated, it can die. If it is dirty, it can lead to a significant infection. Um, all bad things. So that cuff, people are going to close it very well. They're going to be very careful when they're doing it. Um, and they're going to be usually talking to the woman about keeping, you know, nothing in the vagina for at least six weeks after um, a hysterectomy in which we had to close a vaginal cuff just because uh, it is at risk for opening up again. And that includes even like sitting in a bathtub because it could lead to an infection, which could lead to an opening. Um, the other thing is sometimes we will not take out the cervix. So if we don't take out the cervix, we do what's called a supracervical hysterectomy. That is going to, um, leave the cervix in place, which some women want. Uh, there's no evidence that leaving the cervix in place increases, um, sexual satisfaction, which is often one reason that women request to keep their cervix is that they think that it, um, will help them be more sexually satisfied. Some people say that it helps them climax and things. And if that's a personal preference, that's fine. The studies have not borne that out to be um, true. Women who have a complete or a total hysterectomy, meaning removal of the cervix, have no decrease in sexual satisfaction compared to women who keep their cervix. Uh, but women who keep their cervix have to be aware that they have to get pap smear still. So there's a small downside to keeping that cervix. So um, the pendulum keeps women back and forth in terms of which one people prefer. Um, but I think more and more right now, people are having their cervix removed to really avoid those pap smears um, now that we know that it really doesn't change any of the um, sexual outcomes for women, which uh, for a lot of these women, they're, they're young and sexually active. And that's an important thing to be able to discuss and comfortable discussing, uh, often not as a medical student, but at least be comfortable around us discussing it because it's a large portion of our practice and something that, um, you know, it's a large portion of people's lives and their, their home happiness. So uh, you got to be willing to address it and talk about it with your patients. Uh, all right. I think that's how the major, the highlights for the hysterectomy. Um, most of these women, depending on the approach, if it's an open and abdominal hysterectomy, they're going to stay one, uh, at least one, if not two or three nights in the hospital. Um, 
If it's a vaginal or laparoscopic or robotic, they will either go home the same day or the first day after. Um, ask them all the same questions you would ask after a laparoscopic surgery when you post-op round on them, meaning nausea, vomiting, eating, drinking, voiding, passing gas, ambulating, check on their urine output, check on their blood pressures, um, check their vitals, make sure they're afebrile. Um, and then, you know, tap on their belly, make sure they're not getting tympanic and distended. Um, it's a good time to practice your um, percussive exam and, and see if you can tell the difference between bowel tympany and not. Um, because a lot of the women after an abdominal will have a pretty good tympany that you can get used to uh, finding on exam. So if you're even, you know, if you're going into GYN or not, there's a lot of different specialties that uh, need a good abdominal exam. So it's a good chance to practice that. Um, all right. If you have any questions, write them in the comments or uh, visit us at pimpedapp.com and submit your questions. Uh, if you have any uh, burning questions that you want a new podcast on, we are recording these um, on an ongoing basis. So let us know, uh, submit your questions or comments, and uh, we'll be happy to incorporate and address them as we can. All right. Hope you enjoy it. See you next time.